0: Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we contemplate the intersection of economics, psychology, politics, history, and science. I'm Mark Olbert. And I'm Seth Rosenblatt. Seth, happy 2023, even though it's already February. (laughs) And boy, were we right when we said at the close of last year that our publication pace was likely to slow down a bit. But I'm glad to be back in action.
1: Yeah, me too. And uh, Happy New Year to you as well. I'm excited to see what we can explore this year. And we're going to start off with a topic that may not at first seem connected to politics and economics, but I think when we delve further into it, it will
0: be indeed. Oh my gosh, I love teasers. Today we're going to discuss success (laughs) and failure and what they mean on an individual and community level, including the role success and failure play in our personal decision-making and the biases they create in social interactions and politics.
1: And this definitely relates to our previous podcast on how we learn, or don't learn, from the past.
0: Let's start off by defining some terms. Success and failure seem like straightforward concepts, but as with a lot of supposedly simple ideas, they contain a lot of hidden complexity. Yeah, that's right. And success and
1: failure are loaded and sometimes pejorative terms. And even when they're objective, they are relative and not absolute. Because whether something is a success or not
0: is kind of by definition, a measurement against some yardstick. And as we've discussed in previous podcasts, humans are often subject to hindsight bias. Since we dislike being wrong, itself a form of failure, we blithely rewrite history to match whatever our current reality happens to be.
1: (laughs) Yes, I I think you're referring to a concept sometimes we call moving the goalposts, right? (laughs) The idea that we change the definition of
0: success, or in general, even the rules of the game as we attempt to achieve that success. So many times in business or in politics, I've seen someone declare victory not because they achieved the goal, but because they consciously or unconsciously changed the goal along the way. Did you fail to win that war we claimed just had to be won in Indochina? Well, let's recharacterize the goal as achieving peace with honor. (laughs)
1: So that's why in business, or often in an academic setting, you hear people refer to what we call SMART goals. SMART's an acronym of Specific, Measurable, Achievable, Realistic, and Timely. If a measure of success is specific and objective and it's time-bound, it's a lot harder to game in hindsight. So it's like a difference between setting a goal that says, I will lose some weight, versus a goal that says, I will lose 10 pounds within the next six months. The former is a little easy to game and fool yourself. The latter creates a much more objective measure of success or failure.
0: (laughs) But there's a cost to smart goals, and the weight loss one illustrates it perfectly, at least for me. I've often put off losing weight because I find specifically measurable weight loss goals really hard to achieve. I've had more success (laughs) adopting fuzzier goals because then I don't feel so bad about not achieving what I set out to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, I get that. But it's, and it's also important to point out that some of the most important things in life are really difficult to measure. Happiness, love, friendship, etc. Yet we still want to be successful in those
0: areas, too. It's hard for anyone, even the person experiencing them, to measure subjective outcomes. Who's happier, the guy with lots of friends he interacts with occasionally, or the guy who has a small number of very close friends he interacts with all the time? It depends on the person.
1: Let's also remember that sometimes reality changes on the way to success and should cause you to properly move those goalposts. Maybe in the weight loss example, I mean, your doctor advises you to change your goal after you make it. I mean, it would kind of be then be silly to say, oh, sorry, doctor, I already set the goal, so I can change it since I want to be objective, right?
0: <laughs> Context matters a lot, too. American independence in the 18th century was pretty clearly a failure from the British point of view at the time. But in the 20th century, it sure helped the British to have U.S. backing in fighting the Nazis. Although, admittedly, we can't ever know what would have happened in that fight if the American Revolution had failed.
1: For sure. I mean, but I suspect that success and failure reverse themselves over time more often than we think. And as we'll get to, that can actually be a good thing. You know, there's so many dimensions to this discussion. I mean, another one I find fascinating is the following question. Is success the same as winning? Whether that be in sports, in war, in business, or, you know, anything else.
0: That distinction made King Pyrrhus famous, although I suspect he would have been willing to pass up the honor because his army suffered irreplaceable casualties when it defeated the Romans.
1: Yes, he illustrated this conflict quite literally, right? But it happens in all walks of life. You know, a Pyrrhic victory in sports, for example, can occur if a team feels a player with a minor injury whose participation aggravates that injury and sidelines him for the rest of the season.
0: Now that we've defined our terms, let's talk about how we're affected by successes and failures, both as individuals and as communities. We all want success, but we regularly remind ourselves that we learn more from failure. Yet no one I know goes out of his way or her way to fail in order to learn.
1: (laughs) That's right. There's a
0: bit of a failure paradox, particularly
1: when it's about our kids. We both served on a school board, so we know that educators and others say that kids learn best from failure. And maybe as parents, you know, we could really believe that. But even those of us who buy into that notion completely then don't turn around and root against our kids on the (laughs) soccer field.
0: (laughs) Or hope that they get bad grades in school.
1: So let's delve a little deeper into those benefits of failure.
0: Failure gives direct and often immediate feedback on what you shouldn't do, which can keep you from injuring yourself or wasting time pursuing avenues that aren't working. It's so powerful, I think, because humans are basically optimists. We tend not to even notice when things go right because we figure that's just the way things ought to go. So failure really stands out and can dramatically cement lessons, where success just confirms our pre-existing expectations and so keeps us from learning much about what led to the success.
1: You know, I remember that the artistic director of our local children's theater would always tell the kids, keep making mistakes, but just don't make the same mistake over again. You know, rather make
0: new mistakes. Repeating the same mistake is a double-level failure, the failure itself, and failing to recognize that you failed. If you're repeating mistakes, you didn't learn from them.
1: Another potential benefit from failure is that it can build resilience. The lived experience of having failed And despite that failure, realizing that the world didn't fall apart and knowing that you'll be able to get back up and fight another day.
0: Or maybe even reevaluate what success means to you in that particular circumstance or what is truly important to you.
1: Yeah, and there certainly are plenty of examples where people who have had it too easy in life don't have this resilience. I mean, maybe never really learned a lot of life lessons and have a hard time
0: later being successful when things don't go perfectly. Hmm, That sounds suspiciously like another Trump reference. (laughs)
1: I don't know, maybe so. Well, so clearly there is a consensus that failure has a lot of upsides, but no one advocates failing all the time, right? So let's look at the dark side of failure.
0: First off, catastrophic failure can be fatal, which kind of gets in the way of learning. But non-catastrophic failures, particularly repeated ones, sap energy. They can reduce or take away your drive to keep going, whereas success gives you energy to do more, work more, achieve more. Right, which I guess why there's another saying that success breeds success. I know in my case, I became a better motorcycle rider after I cracked up and broke all the ribs on my right side, (laughs) but I don't recommend it as a way to improve one's riding
1: skills. (laughs) Yeah, I probably uh, wouldn't do it that way. But perhaps the way to think about this is that we want ourselves and our kids, right, to fail enough times to learn, but in a context where the long-term consequences aren't huge and also
0: that they succeed enough times to stay energized to keep achieving. Like so many other things we touch on in these podcasts, it seems to me it's a matter of striking a useful balance and recognizing that useful balances are rarely static and you just have to adjust them over time. And I think there's another dimension to this too, right? I had a boss many years ago who said,
1: you always learn from all successes and from all failures. In both cases, some things probably went well and some things probably didn't. The trick is to reflect on both of these, regardless of whether you succeeded or failed.
0: But I think our inherent optimism, we expect to succeed, gets in the way of that kind of reflection. For one thing, because success does breed success, we all want to go on to the next success and not waste our time figuring out why we succeeded.
1: When you succeed, you tend to forget the things that didn't go well on the way to success, right? The little failures that happened along the way. And you probably also underestimate how others may have helped you. You know, once again, ignoring the value of being part of a high-functioning
0: community. On the other hand, when we fail, we often deflect or minimize our personal role in the failure by blaming it on external factors. It's another form of avoiding cognitive dissonance. But the net result is we may not make the effort to reflect on a failure and learn from it.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's why we often just blame the refs, right?
0: (laughs) Yes. And the modern GOP has built a formidable political machine by institutionalizing that very process.
1: Given that we'd all like to be successful, right, however we define it, and given that we generally learn more from failure than from success, how do we make decisions on what to pursue and what goals to set for ourselves on the road to success?
0: There's probably no one answer that fits everyone since we're talking about balancing difficult-to-measure things not just outcomes, but risks. How that all plays out at the community level as compared to the individual level is also an important topic. But let's start with the individual level,
1: right? Personally, we're always balancing risk and reward for any decision we make or any venture we pursue, as we discussed in a previous podcast on risk.
0: Everything we do provides some sort of learning opportunity, including ones that we may not even be able to identify when we start out. There's a lot of option value involved. But at the same time, some activities carry downside risk. If we pursue them, it's hopefully because we've decided, after careful reflection, that the former outweighs the latter. You mentioned your motorcycle riding. I mean, you
1: clearly get a lot of benefit from doing that. And on some level, I guess I see the appeal. But for me, I can't get over the downside risk of it. So I'll never do it.
0: (laughs) Well, there's nothing like experiencing an actual downside to cause you to think about how you assess risk. I still ride because I still see the value received as worth the risk. Oddly enough, that's partly because I'm a better rider now because of that painful lesson.
1: And I guess on some level, we could also go into a venture with the express intent of knowing we're going to learn something regardless of how it turns out. I mean, assuming it's not catastrophic, of course.
0: That's a very valuable and a very powerful perspective. I come out ahead no matter what happens. It's a true win-win situation. But it's also a really personal one because we value risks and rewards differently. It's more a matter of attitude, how we approach things, I think, than anything else. So let's now talk about balancing success and failure on a community level. What what did you mean by that? I think there are two things that are different at the community level. First, communities benefit when some of us take risks, even if those individuals fail. You make me think of things like medical trials, right? Individuals participate
1: in a medical trial to try out a new drug. It may work for them, it may not, they may be in the control group, but in any case, they are taking a risk of failure so that the community can
0: benefit from the learnings that come from either their success or failure. I think another example along those lines are protesters, particularly in oppressive regimes where they face real significant risks. Other members of their community probably benefit from the fact that they do take those risks. Interestingly, what you're describing is what we call in economics
1: a free rider problem. I mean, we've discussed this before on this podcast. It's normally when someone benefits from resources or services of a communal nature yet doesn't pay for them. This can often be a positive externality or a use of a public good, but normally it's the community that's paying with the individuals, the free rider. In this example, the individual is paying and the community is the free rider.
0: It'd be interesting to explore just why these outlier individuals, so to speak, do what they do. Is it just a result of their personal risk-reward analysis being different, or that they have less to lose? Well, on that
1: note, I mean, certainly in some cases, I mean, those with limited financial resources or those who are severely oppressed, I mean, in our two examples above, are the ones who are supporting the larger
0: community and, ironically, helping the more privileged among us. Whatever the reasons, clearly the community benefits from having at least some members who don't follow community norms because it's hard to see how social evolution could occur otherwise. Okay, then isn't the
1: second thing that's different about success and failure at the community level is that as a composite sort of fluid collection of individuals, we don't really have a single yardstick to measure success and failure. And that can make the consequences of success and failure more dramatic for a community leader than for an individual, because failure creates attack opportunities that others vied for community
0: leadership positions can then exploit. Reagan's defeat of Carter in 1980 is a good example of this, I think. It's impossible to know if Reagan, had he been president when the crises Carter faced, the Iran hostage situation, the related oil shortage, extremely high inflation, would have done a better job. But most people assumed that because Carter had failed to handle those crises, he was the poorer leader. Okay, we've talked a
1: lot about the balance of success and failure as individuals and in communities. Let's apply this framework to success and failure in different parts of life, right? Such as science, sports, and business. You know, can we definitely say whether in these areas we indeed learn more from failure than
0: success? Failure is certainly better at cementing lessons, but we have to succeed at some point to accomplish anything, let alone set the stage for pursuing more success. Thomas Edison famously said, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways not to build a light bulb. But we remember him because he did eventually build a light bulb, unlike his competitors.
1: He was clearly persistent. I mean, not everyone would have tried 10,000 ways to solve that problem. So maybe the key is failure plus persistence.
0: He was amazingly persistent, arguably heroically so. But I think it's wrong to assume heroic efforts are necessary to keep going. More often, I think you're better off doing things to minimize that energy-sapping impact of failing we talked about, which can easily lead you to just giving up.
1: I think you're now referring to some degree of maturity, right? Perhaps literally in terms of age, but certainly in terms of temperament and wisdom, which is why I think it's more challenging to balance success and failure you know, when you're a child. And
0: why it's critically important to teach children how to deal with failure so they can learn to be persistent and carry on in the face of setbacks, not to toughen them up for life, but to get them to learn failing is not only part of life, but often also the path to success, sometimes the only path.
1: You know, I know there is disagreement, for example, on how we should reward or recognize kids in youth sports. And I think, Mark, when you and I were growing up, it's fair to say that youth sports were more competitive and cutthroat than they are today. But at some point, a bunch of psychologists came along and said, you know, we need to be more encouraging to children regardless of their ability. And I certainly understand that. But then th- today, there's others that argue that the pendulum has perhaps swung way too far and we now live in a world where every kid gets a trophy and they don't build up resilience you know, from failure.
0: For me, that may be confusing resilience with the ability to learn from failure. Resilience without learning is a pretty mindless strategy. It doesn't take any brains or even necessarily much courage to stay the course. What's hard to do is accept failure, embrace it with the goal of learning from it. That's the primary distinguishing characteristic of almost all the movers and shakers I've looked up to or admired in my life.
1: But it's fair to say, though, that a willingness to learn without resilience means you won't learn because you'll have given up. Failure often isn't the end of the world, and it's almost always an opportunity for growth, which brings us to our parent paradox again. We can have a mindset that we can accept and learn from failure,
0: but at the same time, be competitive and want to win. Our commercial sector has some important and often overlooked lessons about all this, I think. In some ways, business may be the easiest place to accept failure, because we've set up a system where a business can make mistakes and even ultimately fail completely, but it doesn't necessarily mean the individuals involved have failed, and certainly not to the same extent. In fact, the whole concept of the corporate form,
1: as we discussed in our podcast on corporate personhood, was set up to create a distinction between the people running or owning a business and the business itself. This includes the corporate liability shield, bankruptcy protections, and other things intended to make failure more tolerable. It's why most advanced societies also grant their members personal bankruptcy protections, or at least to some extent.
0: We allow businesses to fail and succeed without irreversible judgment or catastrophic consequences probably because we recognize business is full of option value. And it's a very common path that failures can lead to other successes. Because if you're open
1: to it, you always learn something from failing, even if it's just, you know, don't do that again, right? (laughs) And many tech companies, you know, in in our part of the world, right, even try to institutionalize this mindset, right, by encouraging employees to try things that can fail quickly, not because they want failures. I mean, they'd go to business if all they did was fail, But because time is a precious commodity and most learning derives from failure, so failing quickly also means you're learning quickly.
0: Like Thomas Edison, there are lots of examples of businesses that succeeded despite or perhaps because of failure, provided they were persistent and had the funding to keep going.
1: I think, you know, the legend of Colonel Sanders, right? In Kentucky Fried Chicken. I mean, he had multiple other failed careers early in his life, right? He was a lawyer and a salesman. He sold things like lamps and insurance and par- I think even tires. And supposedly when he tried the chicken you know, recipe, I mean, he failed over like a thousand times to sell it to people. And it was something like his a thousand and tenth time, you know, trying to sell the recipe that he got someone to bite, so to speak. <laughs> and, you know, the rest is history.
0: One of my personal favorite failure stories in business involves Intel. They used to make money by designing chips for customers to build calculators. One of their engineers got tired of doing that over and over, so he designed a general purpose device that could be reprogrammed to meet any company's needs. But the project failed because the customer went out of business. Intel's board allocated enough money to finish the project, thinking they'd eventually maybe sell a few thousand units thereby accidentally creating the microprocessor industry, which made Intel the behemoth it is today.
1: <laughs> you know, and this speaks to the role of leadership, particularly in business. The leader must help their teams progress from both what we think of as success as, as well as failure. A good part of the leadership of the company is to make people believe that they can achieve certain goals. I mean, get them to try and risk failure.
0: And of course, there are different management philosophies on how to do that. Some companies talk about setting stretch goals, meaning ones that may be out of reach, while others have more realistic goal-setting processes or may focus on the individual steps needed to get to a larger goal.
1: That first approach reminds me of what I interviewed with the advertising firm Leo Burnett back actually in the late 1980s. Their stated philosophy was, quote, when you reach for the stars, you may not quite get one, but you won't come up with a handful of mud either. (laughs) I mean, clearly that was an emphasis on reach goals. Whereas another CEO I eventually worked for, you know, he preferred the intersection of what he called, you know, what you can commit to doing to what you'd be proud of doing. I mean, that was an interesting and powerful framing too, and perhaps a bit more actionable.
0: Seth, how does this all relate to one of our favorite subjects, politics, which stands apart from the other arenas we discuss because it's inherently a group exercise and almost always a really unforgiving place because it's a competitive arena involving hard-to-measure things and ambitious individuals.
1: Yes, and I think because of that, we certainly don't seem to tolerate mistakes in any form from our elected officials. But given the complexity of the job, mistakes are inevitable. I mean, yet we're very quick to label someone as incompetent or having ulterior motives.
0: One of the things I learned from my minor league political career is very simple. The other side always gets a move, and all moves create attack surfaces. The art of politics is largely, I think, being clever about seeing those surfaces and crafting moves that can't be well countered, which, oddly enough, is rarely the same thing as crafting the best move. But in some way, that's the point. I mean, we wouldn't have debate or
1: accountability if someone opposed to an idea didn't get a move.
0: Absolutely right. But perceived mistakes or decisions with actual negative consequences, despite paying off for the community as a whole, expand the attack surface which creates a certain conservatism in politicians. Taking chances has more relative risk for them than it would in the business world, for example.
1: But as we discussed on our podcast about cancel culture, sometimes those attacks are justified because we are talking about people with lots of power over our lives. I mean, more than most CEOs have. I mean, maybe with a few exceptions. I mean, some mistakes do represent incompetence, while others, I appreciate, represent well-intentioned efforts to try things.
0: The interesting thing is not that we identify and weed out incompetence, of course we've got to do that, but rather how we react to political failure. If politics is unforgiving, that's because the community chooses not to be forgiving. We don't allow much room for an honest mistake, limiting the community's ability to learn. Which also creates a dynamic
1: where it's in the interest of our leaders to try to game the system, to at least create the appearance of not failing. I mean, this is something that's definitely done a lot less in, you know, business or sports or other
0: walks of life than politics. That's why many elected officials remain willfully blind to issues, maybe not even asking tough questions about them, because they worry about the institution they represent or themselves looking like they may failed or made a mistake. I remember a meeting of elected officials where multiple people thanked me afterwards for asking pointed questions that they'd had, too. I remember thinking, if you had the same questions, why the heck didn't you ask them? And why didn't you back <laughs> me up when I asked them? The answer, in part, I suspect, is because it was a better deal for them to have me ask the questions and take the risk of looking foolish.
1: <laughs> well, fortunately for all of us, Mark, you didn't probably care as much as others about taking those risks. You know, it's a similar dynamic, I think, is when politicians, you know, move the goalposts to redefine success even though by any objective measure or their own previous measure, it would be a failure. And I think a good example of this is last year's gun legislation passed by Congress. I mean, it got so watered down from its original intent, so as to practically have a fairly minimal impact on our gun problem in this country. But since it's technically the strongest gun legislation in decades, it gets promoted as, you know, historic victory.
0: Both views are correct. It is historic and it is really limited, but I got to say it's better than nothing. Yeah, I mean, I guess I agree with that. A key part of leadership, particularly political leadership, is making people feel good about themselves. That's why mourning in America worked as a campaign tactic. But if you don't focus on improving the community, all you've accomplished is a form of pandering. That's why ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country is a much more powerful political meme. This fear of failure in
1: politics reminds me of Oedipus who, by desperately trying to avoid killing his father and marrying his mother, as the oracle told him he would, he does exactly that. This conservatism in politics to avoid failing manifests itself at not tackling issues or doing something new, which then in turn robs us from those successes we may gain even if we fail along the way. So, by trying to avoid failing, we end up failing more or succeeding
0: less, at least in the long run. I bet this is why we don't seriously address things like our longstanding health care crisis or our insane gun culture or many, many other issues. We just keep failing because our leaders are afraid of failing in trying to address them. And they're afraid of failing because we have a low tolerance for their political mistakes so mark what can we learn from all of this right it sounds like there are some lessons
1: from the business world here that can cause us individually or collectively to be the most balanced when it comes to tolerating and learning from failures and having those failures lead to success right so how can
0: we apply that more broadly if we keep the good things about failure the ability to learn the strengthening of our resilience and mitigate the bad things the energy sapping, the potential catastrophic dangers we would promote risk-taking, which would in turn dramatically increase our collective wealth and happiness.
1: I mean, we earlier talked about how in business, safety nets are actually in everyone's interest. They make it safer to fail, limiting downside while retaining most of the upside. So this is not a new concept. You know, as we said, we've done this throughout our history, yet we haven't considered generalizing the lesson by making it possible for more
0: people to fail safely. What would that look like? I think it would likely include a number of things. First and foremost. Backstopping individuals with sufficient community-funded resources so that failure doesn't mean becoming destitute or suffering significant physical harm.
1: Also, ideally, it would help to have the community where mistakes don't ruin you and, if anything, are valued. (laughs) Although I recognize this may be hard to do in practice. I think
0: it'd make a great campaign baseball cap. Make America fail again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So let's be more specific. There are a number of potential social safety nets that ironically could better promote capitalism, even though they'd require increased government spending, because they would release currently untapped creativity and talent, thereby benefiting
0: all of us. As we said, we do have some limited safety nets for individuals. We have personal bankruptcy laws, social security, those kinds of things, but they haven't really unleashed the full potential of individuals.
1: Yeah, I mean, we clearly need more. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind to me is universal child care and universal pre-K. I mean, this would create tremendous flexibility and innumerably more choices for families on what they could pursue professionally or otherwise.
0: Completely revamping our health care system would be another thing which would yield tremendous dividends to all of us. Universal coverage would be great, but even just not tying medical insurance to employment would be a big step in the right direction
1: which, as I know that you know, is just an accident of history, and no employer really likes providing it anyway.
0: <laughs> Knowing that a trip to the hospital won't bankrupt you would allow many more choices for everyone in terms of how they can add to society.
1: Another example would be making college more accessible, right? both in terms of process and in terms of cost. And this change would promote risk-taking, and actually allow more individuals to create more value for society, for all of us.
0: Of course, paying for all of this and other things that we didn't list here would not be cheap. But let's not forget how a more progressive tax system would go a long way to both fund these changes and recognize the community benefit that accrued to folks who have achieved a certain level of success, which as we discussed in an earlier podcast, almost always happened because they had the ability to safely fail.
1: Mark, that's a good place to end, you know, in recognizing once again that our success is not solely our own, but as a result of a combination of our abilities and hard work with the community and the support that was created around us.
0: We may be two successful capitalist pigs, but we are well aware that many other people had a hand in building the pigsty that made our success possible.
1: (laughs) Even if we are still covered in mud, right? <laughs> well, thanks to you, Mark, for a fun podcast to kick off 2023. And of course, thanks to our listeners. Signing off, this is Seth. And Mark. Wishing you lots of good failures in 2023.
0: <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. See you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt, all rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.